this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfillan with I Change Justice podcast, and I'm here today with Atul Deshmani. He's been on our podcast a few other times talking about corporate sectors, public sector corporations. He's been talking about public safety needs, how to heal communities during a COVID crisis and the civic trauma that followed that COVID crisis, and about standing up against the establishment politics when he went against the plan to actually want to build a large jail in Whatcom County when the public had already said no to it twice. The reason I'm inviting a tool to the call again is because it's been a few months since we talked to him before. It's been a few months since the county went ahead and put this jail tax on the market. And it's been a few months since he finally decided to run for office again. And the reason that we're talking about it on a national level as well as a local level is because I want to get his reflections on what's happened over the last five or six months, eight months, not five or six months, five or six years since he first put his toe in the water and started doing things like as a planning commissioner, then as a PUD commissioner, then as a civic activist, you know, where are you at and what's been happening in your world? Well, thanks for having me, Joy. It's a real pleasure to be back. And yeah, I'm in the middle of things. Uh, <laughs> it's fun because you don't see things the way most people do because you're an engineer, you're a pragmatist, you're an athlete, you're a dancer. You've got all this human stuff in the background that's that you assess everything through. So what's happened in your eyes? Because we're in a whole different reality now than we were a few just a few years ago. You know, I think we are. And 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 I've been thinking about this is our community, like many uh, local governments, local communities, uh, about maybe 10 years ago, started getting a lot of hopeful thinking about what we could do in local government and elected a lot of people with hopeful ideas. And what's happened over the last, let's say, five years is a series of dismal disappointments of turning progressive values into something tangible. And, uh, and it's also it's also the language and the story of what's there's been confusion injected into progressive language and com progressive things. So there's not only disappointments, there's confusion and dis misdirection and all kinds of stuff that's entered the market. For sure. And 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 I would say that the confusion and uh and about what's true and what's not true is a big reason why progressive values have not turned into reality. And a lot of that's related also to social media, the rise in social media, the rise in technology, the rise in corporate issues, the reality show versus, you know, fake news, <laughs> you know, the whole disinformation campaign. Mm -hmm. All of that's part of it. Yeah. And on top of that, obviously, in the tail end of the five years, COVID didn't help at all because it brought authoritarian control into the picture. Um, it wasn't a bottom-up thing. You know, many of us uh, <laughs> had hoped that our response to COVID would bring out our best angels. Would, would... And it did. It did for many of us, certainly in our families and in our close-knit communities. There's, there's some wonderful examples. But we also had this overwhelming top-down command and control approach that really squelched 
paying attention to the needs and wants of the public. Well, and if I were to spin off of that for just a second, one of the things we've talked about is that that emergency command and control stuff went along with economic domination. Because yeah. when you have the emergency disasters, it changes the entire balance of power as to who's in charge of the money in any county, any given county, because it changes the balance of power. They control the economy and there's a mass injection of outside money that comes into a local government. And then the local government has money to spend that they didn't have before. And it changes, it disorients. How do you run money? How does the county run money? Where's the money coming from? How does it get dispersed? And in the middle of it, we had all these human losses. You had lockdowns and shutdowns. So, and, and we had a lot of grief because people couldn't travel, they couldn't go places. So we had a lot of grief and a lot of death. So how did you experience that affecting you as a person in the community? And what have you learned in the process of going off? I, I mean, I feel like we sort of did a preamble, but now what's happened from your perspective and what have you learned from that? What I'm learning from that is it's really important to be grounded. And, uh, you know, a big part what grounds me is being affiliated with the Restorative Community Coalition. It's uh, a big piece for me because of what it, the organization stands for. It's about transforming something that's, for most people, a very negative and demoralizing subject into something that's really positive. And that's an important way to ground yourself. Of course, I'm really lucky to have this incredibly supportive, rounded family. I just got back from my niece's wedding, which was such an important ceremony for my family and for me, the opportunity to remember where I come from. You know, I don't know if we've talked about uh, that very much, but it's been very helpful. The importance of being grounded without getting into too many details. It's the importance of being ground that uh, I've really learned. And I'm seeing that with people who are running for office, the ones that are grounded and are confident and proud of their heritage are the ones that are in a great place to be able to withstand the inertia, stand against the inertia, this, this uh, flow, of constancy that we have to stay on the same track and embrace the same models that haven't served us even though they're not serving us we have to do something is a phrase that i'm hearing a lot around incarceration and homelessness and what's not said is we have to do the same thing it's almost like they're saying we have to do same thing not we have to do something so and, it's like the same thing is like the habit pattern of the past. Maybe if we go back to that, we can feel safe again. Uh-huh. And I would replace that with we have to do S-A-N-E, same thing. <laughs> uh-huh. That's the something we should do, the same thing. And the same thing is actually paying attention to the needs and wants of the public to truly incorporate an understanding of what people who are actually affected by government policy, meaning the opinion of the person who is affected by the government policy should have a particularly important voice in the government policy. So if you're talking about, for example, a hospital, we should be talking to patients, families of patients, their experiences to decide whether this hospital is performing well. If you're talking about a jail, we should be talking about people that are being incarcerated, the families of those people being incarcerated, and the families of those people who are, who are affected by those people who are incarcerated. 
Well, and the people who have come out of incarceration, how's it's affected them down the road because the trauma and the impact of being incarcerated is a lifetime impact. It changes. This actually goes back to your idea about place-based or being grounded. Like, are you grounded as a culture? Are you grounded in your generational heritage? Are you grounded if you've been severely traumatized by, you know, an, a disaster or an economic, you know, disaster, you got displaced or the civic displacement that's happened this last couple of years, like people are displaced and they're, and they're displaced economically and socially and culturally and structurally, because when the authoritarian type of thinking comes in, it changes everything about how you behave. So I think that's what you're talking about when you're talking about being grounded mm -hmm. and when you're talking about talking to people who are actually in it, as opposed to talking to people who are not in it, but they're just controlling it. Right. There is another way to put it, is that grounding is so important because what I have learned is it's hard to learn. <laughs> Say that again. What I have, Grounding is so important because what I've learned is it's hard to learn. It's actually hard to, as an elected, to actually turn what you hear into action. And a person uh, in the community recently said, why do people in politics just talk so much? And I thought about that. And I, I my answer was, is because it's painful to keep listening to you. <laughs> I think you've said that to me before, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason is because the implications of what the public tells you are substantial and profound. And actually turning the public's angst and disappointment into meaningful, positive action is hard. And when you realize that that's hard, you start wanting to kill the messenger. <laughs> wow. Right? So it's what I've learned is that this process is difficult and challenging, but it must be done. Well, one of the things that you're talking about when you talked about politicians often talk a lot. I mean, they just talk and talk and talk and they get all these promises and they do these things because number one, they're programmed to talk. You know, you got to look good in order to feel good so that you can win the election so that you can go to work. But that's a whole year, six months to a year worth of campaigning, which is all about you pushing your stuff out. And then suddenly when you're elected, you're sitting on the other side of it and you're going, Oh, wow. Now I'm in defense. Before I was playing offense. Now I'm playing defense. But the offense that I was going, I mean, it's like everything gets twisted upside down and then you're paid to cover up for the politics that went before. Right. Wait. Right. There's a certain amount of accumulated guilt that happens for electeds and it can be really hard on a person because I don't, there's a low, low number of people who get into politics who are doing it without a concern for the public and without a desire to serve the public. I think most people are. You mean when they first come in, they really do care about the people and then the these issues can become overwhelming. Is that what you're saying? And that's what makes people cynical is that the, the issues, the needs and wants of the public are, are an overwhelming burden to them across that they um, have trouble bearing. And But it's not really for them to carry. The public isn't asking electeds to carry their crosses. The public is asking the electeds to develop solutions and then be clear about how much they're going to improve the situation. It's the job of the electeds to tell the public what is the good news about what is happening, and then also the bad news. And that honesty is the only way to keep you from carrying way more weight 
than you are supposed to. For example, when I joined the PUD, I was told that the PUD, PUD. The public, sorry, the public utility district. I was elected to the public utility district. I was told that we weren't going to do broadband. And now we're doing it. So how many steps can you imagine it took to go from a hard no to, okay, we're doing it? Well, it took several steps, but are we doing it to the extent that I'd like to see? No. So one of the things I am telling people about all the time when I have a chance is that, yeah, we're doing it, and it's still not enough. Um, and that's really important to do. Because otherwise, I'm presenting that I'm solving the community's problems all at once, and I'm a hero, but then I know deep down inside that I'm actually not. <laughs> so you're caught in this paradox of yeah. looking good. Yeah, and I'm catching across. That's not mine to break, but like you know, the fact of the matter is, none of none of us are are have the have the ability to fix this on our own. So you you take a knock at it, and you move the you move the you move the uh, process one step forward. And that's not the same as compromise. People confuse those two words. They the compromise is what you do when you're playing politics. Right. You're moving the needle forward when you're not playing politics and you're working, you're actually listening to people's problems because this is one of the things I've witnessed about you. You listen to the problem. You actually go out and do some additional research and look at it and say, wow, what is the puzzle? So you can come back and tell somebody, here's the positive. Here's the negative. I don't know how to solve it yet. Do you have any ideas? So your ability to ask for information is not doesn't mean that you're a less capable politician it is if you're playing politics but if you're not playing politics and you're actually driving trying to solve the problem hmm. asking for help is a rational viable logical thing to do if you're authentically trying to fix the situation would you agree with that what i and I, yes i agree with it and i also think that you have to know, like you said, it's not the compromise is not the same thing as conviction. So when you you have to know where you stand, you have to know where you want to go, and you have to have the conviction to get there and take as long and, and spend as much energy and as, as time as needed to get there. So what that means is that you're not the only person in the room making these recommendation decisions, policies, so on. So you've got to compromise on what you actually agree to for that first step. The size of those steps is a process of compromise. But where you're headed doesn't change. And that's the thing that I think a lot of people in politics struggle with, which is they compromise their values. And that is not something that any of us should do. We should compromise on our outcomes because we have to. That's really important because that's where it comes back again to negotiating for the best possible outcome, not negotiating to be the winner or the loser. So it's interesting. You just put a bunch of different paradoxes into the conversation. We need to take a break. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with a tool to talk about compromise versus conviction, emotional and moral groundedness, versus having your values nice and solid so you know how to think and then coming back and talking about compromising values as different from compromising the outcome we'll be right back with the tool dash money from whatcom county washington are you a member of patreon.com and enjoying our podcasts as a patron, you can support the production of the I Change Justice podcast series. You can also support the Restorative Community Coalition, get our news, updates, and access to our digital training programs downloaded directly to your email address on a regular basis. So welcome back to the call of tool. Let's keep going on this, this question of these, these paradoxes or predicaments you know these these things that people have to deal with when we're in a world that's moving all the way around us you're talking about human values and human human vision and being able to hold steady under pressure 
And in the last five years, we have had compound civic, I'm going to call it compound civic domestic violence, because it's all happening in your domestic nation. And it's in our state and it's in our local communities. And people are under a lot of of conflict, even in their families. So let's talk some more about these, you know, how does that affect you as a person in the office? And what have you done to be able to hold yourself steady? And what do you want to do as an official? How can you help us? So what I want to do is to institutionalize and make it a normal thing to do needs assessments. Above all, I want to make it a normal thing for us to do needs assessments. What does that mean? So a needs assessment is a process by which you capture the voice of the citizen, of the community member. You know, and it took me years, Joy, working with the Restorative Community Coalition to realize I actually had something to offer. You know, I was learning so much from you and Irene and others, actually, about how to be a better human, but also about the situation we have with incarceration. And it was a couple of years in that I finally realized, oh, I know what I know that can help this situation. I spent most of my life prior to that as an engineer, working both in very large companies and the smallest companies. And that experience had one common theme, is that you have to know the voice of the customer. And if you don't know the voice of the customer and how to translate that into your product, then there's a lot of things that could still go wrong. But for sure, you're going to fail if you don't have the voice of the customer. Things still go wrong, even after that. But for sure, you won't succeed if you don't understand that. And well, Especially when you don't know who is your customer. Right. And so in the public sector, in government, it's not the customer. You're not trying to sell anything as a government For most, in most cases. What you're trying to do is serve people. But the same thing is true. You have to know what the needs and wants of your community are. And for the most part, the way we quantify the needs and wants is elected leaders licking their finger and pulled, holding it up in the air and estimating what they think. Now, the problem with that is that our elected leaders get elected every four years. And they're in the middle of campaign season and they're trying to raise money and they're getting uh, bombarded with information. They're drinking from a fire hose of information. There's nothing systematic about that process of, of discovery. It's good information. I'm not going to say you don't get good information when you're on the campaign trail. But today, politics is more and more about money and raising lots of money. I know even in our little local elected campaign, all the candidates are out there hollering for more money. So we got to have a better way. And that better way is to conduct needs assessments. And so that way, neither the political influences of money and power matter, nor the tenure of staff who work for the government matter. All that matters are those that are affected. And if we do a good job of that, I think it will really protect our whole system of government. Well, it's interesting because you just said two things again that are very different that I've heard, which is always fun when listening to you because you see things from a completely, you know, it's like we're we're different. I don't know if you know that butterflies have like all kinds of lenses through which they see the world similar to hummingbirds, you know, they flitter around all over the place and they got thousands of bits of data. And just as an aside, our human body consumes most of our energy goes in through the eyeball. We consume an enormous amount because we're seeing things always differently. So we consume massive amounts of energy because we see the world differently. So you just saw the world differently. And I just heard you say that it's important that we need to know what our clients need 
And it occurs to me that most people have no idea what client, who are our clients, as opposed to who are our funders, as opposed to who pay us to get things done. So the money gets right in the middle of all that, because in the public safety arena, which is what we're talking about here right at the moment, you're talking about public safety and services. We're talking about jails. We're talking about you know, what are we trying to get done? Are we trying to keep the police safe? Are we trying to keep the public safe? Are we trying to keep the families of those people who are being affected by the perpetrator of the violence safe? And then once you talk about that, then you get into the political arena. Are we writing rules and regulations to control the victim or the perpetrators or the controllers who run the jails or the facility? So it becomes very quickly very confusing because in fact the government is here actually to to be the public safety people they're here to protect us from domination from you know losing our freedoms to keep us safe on all levels so the government has carrying a fiduciary role to take care of people and then we have the clients well which clients are they the victims are they the perpetrators are the clients the prosecutors or the defenders are they elected officials? And then who's paying the money to get it all done? Yeah, and you say that the uh, government has a responsibility to protect the people. And I wholeheartedly agree. And I think probably almost all the citizenry of Whatcom County agrees with us. But in practice, local government always makes sure to protect the corporation of local government first. And that's confusing. And that's confusing because that's not what we assume. So once we have a way of grounding, you know, we talked about grounding earlier. Well, the way to ground policy is in needs and wants of the public. And so once you did from that, you can develop solid policy. And then from those solid policies, then we can direct the staff to take action to decide exactly how to get the services that we need for people and then build facilities to deliver the services. We don't build facilities to, we're not building facilities for the sake of building facilities. We're building facilities because they are a way to deploy services. So you've got to know what you're trying to deliver to people first before you even start the effort to build a new jail. And, well, we haven't done that. And so once we have, but let's just go back to the hopeful vision. Once you have your needs assessment, then you have your policy direction, and then you can write your plan for what kind of requirements for services you want, and then you write specifications for facilities. And then when it all all built, guess what? Like everything we build, it's never right, right? Then you go back and you look how everything is working. You compare it to what your needs are. And then you evolve those needs. You continue to move things in a certain direction to better meet those needs. Well, it's interesting talking to you as an engineer. It's very logical. Very, very, very logical. And it's very logical to start from a values base, like what are the facts and what are the reality, what's actually here first, and then to also anchor it on the other end. So it's like you've got two outside perimeters. You've got the values of, you know, what are the facts and the and uh, what we're dealing with, but you've also got the vision for what you want. So if your vision is public for the public's safety, or is it is the vision for public safety departments to build public safety facilities so the government feels safe because they've covered their insurance needs because the federal government and the collective intelligence of our entire national scene. I mean, we're the number one punisher of people in the world. We've got extraordinary amounts of people yeah. in prisons. I would argue that public safety is never me being safer at your expense. <laughs> well, that's, but I mean, that's what it shouldn't be. But in fact, when when we don't have a needs assessment 
to ground. So again, you're coming back to grounding, not just the people who are the officials in the system, but ground the community. And what do we really want when we're talking about public safety? And then ground us in the facts and data, which brings us back to policy and structural systems that you're talking about, right? Right. Right. So I kind of described a process starting from needs and wants, going to policy and requirements for what kind of services the government should be deploying, and then deciding and developing specifications for facilities, and then check your work. And when you say what I want to do, it's kind of boring. Uh, what I want to do, it's really about a pretty boring process. <laughs> it's boring only because it's a routine, but it's not boring. The content goes into it when you're actually asking real questions, correct? You just right. said it's hard work. That's it, That can't be boring. You know, one of the things I love about being a commissioner of the Public Utility District okay. is there's something about that infrastructure philosophy to government. And I've gotten that at the Planning Commission, too that how really well-designed land use practices in the same way, you know, people don't notice it. People don't understand land use code in general. I sure didn't. People don't understand infrastructure in ge general. But what happens is when government does that really well, when government does, does policy really well, you don't notice it. You take it for granted. But guess what? Everything goes smoothly. And that's what good government is. The kind of government where you barely know it's there. Because everything is going smoothly. That's so, that, so that you've set up the structure so the dynamics of the energy that has to flow through the structure can go with without impediment. Right. And this is this is where we are today, where, which is we're having lots of people upset, disappointed, uh, expressing a disappointment in city at, at the county level. And where we are today is actually very valuable information we're getting on a daily basis by people's disappointment, the saying that, hey, government, you're not doing your job. And so we have this wonderful opportunity. An optimistic, uh, realistic statement I like to say is that the universe gives us every day an opportunity to do the right thing. And so that's the way to be uh, looking at this current situation. We've obviously made mistakes, but today we have a brand new opportunity to, to start a new direction. So it's interesting. You're talking about opportunity. You're turning you're turning problems into opportunities is actually part of what you're talking about. And being able to troubleshoot where there's friction and where there's problems. And that's, I think that on a nationwide level and even globally, it's the same story, right? I mean, it's the same story fundamentally. The story itself changes because the words change. But the conflict and the trauma of having to deal with old systems that don't work anymore. So we've actually got two issues that I just heard you talk about is that it's the needs assessment going into it. You need accurate data and you need to be talking to the right people at the front end. And then you need a process for being able to assess a flow that is logical and rational so that you can come up with the right conclusions. And then you talked about something else important is that once you have solutions, you have to be able to have a way to come back and check your work to see if it's actually the delivering the result that the people were asking for in the first place. Do I have that? Right. Right. So, and yeah, a lot of, I mean, it takes patience. It's going to take us patience and persistence to deliver that change in our local government. And I have to be able to myself have again grounding to hold steady and keep asking for the changes that we need and 
that patience is the most important, I think, quality to have. Well, and you also need need uh, the perspiration. <laughs> you know, just like a like when you ride your bicycle all over the county, you have patience when you get on it if your mu- muscles don't really want to work quite right. So you you slow down and you stretch out and you have the patience to give your body a chance yeah. to accommodate where you're at, the ecosystem, the weather, the cold, the heat, whatever you're dealing with. And then the persistence of repetition of learning to be good at what you're doing. Right. And then you got to put some perspiration behind it if you actually want to get anywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, and that ties into purpose and product on the outside. So you've actually got a five-step process here. So within this whole thing, let's talk about this in a minute. Uh, I need to take another quick break. I'll be right back with you, Atul. But I want you to think about how do you know what's real when the world around you is changing at such high rates of speed and we're dealing with technology? Like we went through a quantum shift in how technology works. We went through a quantum shift in how our politics works, how our economy works. And then you're in the middle of all this. What do you have to tell us about that? Let's take a minute and we'll be right back. Thank you to our sponsors. You can find links to them and a list of our donors on our website at therestorativecommunity.org. You can also donate to support our direct services and our restorative community outreach and initiatives by clicking on the donate button. So welcome back, Atul. Let's go back to the question of, you know, how do you know what's real real when everything in our world is is moving? When you're working as an engineer, you're trying to build just a building for, for this. But in the case of public safety, you're actually trying to produce a result with humans that you can't necessarily measure inside a building. You may have to build a building to conduct things, but the whole process of moving from one place of public safety to another is a dynamic flowing process of working with humans who are trying to grow, who are trying to live in a, in a civic system and an economic system that isn't working normal. And we're dealing with a government that is under extreme stress also, and it's being pushed from all kinds of angles, not just political, but corporate and insurance and large business and large money that's moving through here. Um, how challenging, well, I want to ask two questions. How challenging is this as different from working in a solid citizen type of job where you got trained to do things in a certain way? They told you what to do. You, As long as you go through your steps and you get the money and you get the building built at the end, it's a nice solid thing. You get paid, you go home. How is that different from being in politics and how is it different from running a public corporation where you're dealing with mass changes and mass moving parts? Well, you know, I'm uh, 55 now and I've got the benefit of doing a lot of things wrong. Um, (laughs) And uh, realizing that what we were taught in school was uh, an approximation that was sometimes not um so helpful right so here's what uh i think is the way to know what is real it's a process that we uh, learn in engineering and the name of that process is triangulation and it came from people doing surveying and i'm not using it completely consistent with you know the original engineering use of the term triangulation but the idea is looking at something from a few different observation points so that you can cross-check what you see and by cross-checking you figure out what's true and what's not true so that's this- really that's interesting because when you triangulate things, you may even go up or down a little bit to be able to see different perspectives. So it's not necessarily on a linear plane where you have to make measurements and adjustments. Right. So let me tell you the three vantage points that matter in a triangulation process. Those are what I see with my own eyes as a policy person, someone who's responsible to develop policy. 
There's what the frontline caregivers, or the anybody on the front line. In the case of building a road, it's not a caregiver, it's the people who build a road. In a manufacturing plant, it's the people who run the equipment in the manufacturing plant from my old days. But as it relates to housing, homelessness, the jail, the opiates crisis, so on and so forth, it's from the people who are social workers, from police officers, from other people who are actually providing mutual aid. That's the second vantage point. And the third vantage point is, of course, the people that are being affected. Uh, the homeless people and their families, and so on. And so by looking at all three to different perspectives, you can pretty ma you can pretty regularly get a solid feel for what's actually happening. And the ironic thing is that everybody has a little bit of a spin. I mean, we all are self-serving. So we all have our own spin on the situation. But the ironic thing is that even though everybody has their own spin, but by taking advantage of what everybody has to say and tri triangulating this way, you can largely remove the spin in the story. You know, it's interesting when you talk about spin, people assume that, that is a that's a negative. Because we're used to being sold or convinced or pushed around or traumatized. But if you look at the spin differently, you're simply going through an experience with a different directional flow, perhaps, than the next person. You get on a merry-go-round and you're going this way. You were standing solid. The earth is still, actually, we think it's solid. It's not. It's spinning in the universe, too. But when you get on a merry-go-round, that sucker is going around. And the guy that's on the outer periphery of that merry-go-round has a different experience mm -hmm. for a person who's spinning on the inside. And if you get bucked off that thing, you're spinning differently when you hit the ground. So, mm -hmm. so it has to do with your interpretation. It has to do with your hurts. It has to do with whether you want to throw up or get on it. You know, it has to do with whether that merry-go-round started to rattle over there because one of the ball bearings in the center is grinding a little bit. So all of these things are relative to interpretation and it's relative to our experience relative to that interpretation. So even when you have the three polarities or the three triangles, You've also got variables inside it. And what you're talking about is being able to listen to and interpret what people are saying. To actually have your orientation, this is part of your grounding, to be able to know why you're asking the question and what do they need, perhaps, based upon their experience in the process right now. Mm -hmm. So all of those things have a lot to do with how you see yourself inside the system. And there's also the element of who's paying you to do what. You know, that's a very interesting thing. I've been thinking about that whole subject of, you know, electeds do get paid by their organization, right? We receive a uh, variable, but part-time for most local government is part-time compensation. And it's a very interesting relationship because, yes, you get paid by the local government, but where does your loyalty actually lie? Does it lie with the corporation or does it lie with the public? And, we're, and where should it lie? For me, it's very clear. But I've had attorneys with the, with the city, with the county, and certainly at the PUD say to me things that imply that my loyalty is to the corporation, not to the public. And if that's the case, I plan to be the most, continue to be the most insubordinate employee <laughs> I can possibly be. Well, it was interesting to me to witness in, in our process here a few years ago when one of our elected officials got really mad at me because I came up to him and I said, what are you doing? 
You're supposed to be working for the taxpayers. You're not serving the taxpayers. What are you doing? Don't you work for the taxpayers? And, and he said very arrogantly, I don't work for the taxpayers. I work for the people who get me elected. And I went, whoa. And I had witnesses who, who said that because I double checked it. I said, did he really say that? And he's and they said, yeah. And he was madder than heck at you because you're making him have to talk about this thing when it's not your business. And I went, how is it not my business? I elect him and it's my taxpayers dollars that are paying his bill so that he can get paid. And so it started to create this, this like dystopian thing that I'm looking through. And then I ended up talking to a prosecutor and the prosecutor at one point, we went to him with a serious problem. You know, one of the millionaire business owners in town was hurting his clients. He was suing them. And he was doing what I would call dastardly things, not nice things. And we went to him and said, this guy is committing literal felonies. Paper, they were paper felonies, granted. They were corporate felonies against one of his clients who was trying to buy something from him. And he ended up suing the client. Was I mean, it was bizarre. And we we took him down and we, we sat him down and we showed him all the different facts that showed that this businessman was doing it. And he said, you know, it's interesting. Um, I see all that. But, and most people think that I'm the prosecuting attorney who persecutes, prosecutes criminals. But what most people don't understand that I'm the corporate attorney for the corporation of Whatcom County. And this guy is a big enough guy that if I went up against him on these paper arguments, he could sue me over and over and over and waste an enormous amount of taxpayers' money. And I couldn't win anyway. So it's in the benefit of the community for me not to hold this guy accountable. <laughs> and I, I walked out of there and again, my head was like spinning upside down and I'm going, what's up with that? And yes, corporations are controlled by the corporation. When you get elected, it changes your legal position and your moral position and your ability to listen, wouldn't you say? Changes everything. It can. It hasn't changed it for me, Joy. That's why I'm asking the question because I'm asking you how you stay steady because that's really the closing conversation I want to have with you here. How do you stay steady when all those elements are playing around on you because you got the politics and all the rest of it? How do you do that? Help people understand. Yes, because I cannot imagine serving dead institutions at the expense of living people. Wow. Say that again. Because I think that the institutions are only worth anything when they are in service to the people. The whole purpose of the county corporation in this case, which is what I'm running for, to administer the county corporation, I suppose, the only value of that corporation is connected to how well it supports uplifts and nourishes the people. And the moment that that is no longer the focus, I don't care what happens to the county corporation. So I know there's people in the county corporation who don't care um, at every moment about what's the, in the interest of the public. But I can't be and elected and think that way at any moment. So the thing that really holds you steady is your value in understanding that the government is here because of the people, for the people, with the people, around the people. The people are the point. You have to promote the general welfare, as our mutual friend loves to say. Yep. 
Well, that's amazing. And I deeply appreciate it. I'm so grateful that you've been able to get on the call today because this is in the amount of chaos that we're working with in the world where social media is controlling stories and the government corporations can buy the press and buy the story and buy the public relations and everything. The little guy is the one that ends up getting lost in the dark and we become the prey to these government machines. And I'm happy to have somebody like yourself to be able to stand up and talk to people because the problems, they're nationwide, they're global. And unless that's part of my needs assessment process is asking people, that's what I Change Justice is all about asking people what their needs really are and what's really going on and how can we help each other help our communities stay grounded to this life to this earth to rest to honor and integrity and justice do you have any last sentence or two to say before we close up well there's a lot of people who'd like a like and at times myself would like to world to believe that i'm not a little guy but ultimately, I think, like all of us, we're all the same. We all have a little guy inside of us that's fragile and that's uh, vulnerable in the face of government policy, societal trends, big corporations. And we're kidding ourselves when we think we're not, any one of us can be all of a sudden in an extremely vulnerable place where we just need someone to pay attention and give us a little respect. So I think any one of us think we're above it, and if that person over there is the other, then that's not me, and I'll never be in that situation. Well, a lot of those people have been in that situation. So, and it's worth it to, oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. Yeah. We're perfect in every way, but if you flip that stuff upside down, nothing is perfect. Everything is changing. That is the perfection of the universe. So Thank you so much for being with us, Atul. I appreciate it. And thank you for coming on the call, audience. Have a great day. And may we change justice in a healthy way all the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.